Hey everybody, JB here. Thanks for uh, checking out the Trap Rock 101 podcast from Pirates and Poets. It's episode number one, the start of the grand experiment. This could be where it all goes off the rails and ends up in the ditch. But I'm glad you're with us to uh, to check it out and see what happens. Uh, today's guest, guest number one, is the one and only John Patty, still drum player, percussionist extraordinaire. I uh, really enjoyed this conversation. Uh, I've known John for a long, long time. I think we kind of pinned down 2007 or 2008 probably is the first time we ever met each other. Um, and, and we have a lot in common. Uh, uh, learned a lot of things that we had in common or realized a lot of things that we had in common through the course of this uh, conversation, uh, such as the fact that, well, for starters, the obvious one is that both of us are uh, – Still on the fairly young side of things in the Trap Rock Parrothead community, even though we've both been around for a long time. Um, we, we also had some, uh, some pretty cool mentors who, who really got us into the music business and, uh, and helped show us the ropes. Uh, in John's case, that was uh, Jim Morris. In my case, that was Jerry Diaz. Uh, and, you know, we, we've, we've had a good time over the years uh, seeing each other. Two of, the, two of the things that we did not cover in this conversation are... Uh, First off, John's calendar, which uh, I've given him never-ending grief for several years now for having a calendar, like, you know, he's a cheerleader or a fireman or something like that. Uh, it, it works for him. He's making money off of it, and he's having a good time for it. But I do love to give him uh, a lot of good-natured shit about those calendars. Uh, the other thing we didn't mention in here is the Trop Rock Strong video, which premiered a couple weeks ago, uh, featuring Bob Marley's Three Little Birds. JP was one of the... Uh, Three driving forces behind that video, along with Donnie Brewer and Tom Shepard. So uh, go check that out. Uh, just Google Trap Rock Strong on YouTube if you haven't already seen the video. Or if you have seen it, you should probably go watch it again because it's, it's a pretty long video. And there's all kinds of little stuff you can catch as you watch it over and over again. Uh, so anyway, thank you for joining us. Uh, if you want to learn more about the Trap Rock 101 podcast, go to piratesandpoets.net slash Trap Rock 101 or download the Podbean app and search for Trap Rock 101. Um, again, want to say thank you to, to JP for being the uh, guinea pig on this. Um, really enjoyed the conversation. We covered a lot of ground. Um, yeah, and it's uh, it's always fun to catch up with, with JP in a setting where neither one of us have to be doing something two minutes later. So anyway, here we go. Enjoy it. My conversation with John Patty. Well, First and foremost, thanks for having me on. This is really cool. It's uh, great to get a chance to talk over uh, how this whole ca- crazy life and career kind of got going. And it's kind of interesting how things happen that you don't really think of uh, as being special. And then later years, you find that that was some of the launching point to get yes. to where things are going. So uh, my launching point happened uh, a few years back uh, at a theme park, believe it or not. And maybe a little bit earlier than that, I uh, started as a drummer. My dad was a uh, um, played drums for a couple of bands around the Baltimore area. And um, so he had the drum set set up. Apparently there's record and video of me playing when I was three and four years old. And then I remember when I was about six or seven, you know, beating the hell out of the drums. So, so that's where it first started there. My parents were into all kinds of different styles of music, but uh, were Parrot Heads and, and Buffett fans and loved that style. So I was introduced to that sound early on. Um, and then it, the, the defining point came when, uh, we had a family trip to a little area called uh, outside Pennsylvania, outside of Philadelphia, called Sesame Place. It's a theme park that was based around Sesame Street. So uh, all the different 
areas of the park had their different themes and one region in the little lazy Susan region of the, of the water park there uh, was a little island. It was called Oscar's trash cans, a little section called Oscar's trash cans. And they were old steel drums that were there and you can go up and with mallets play these steel drums. And that was the first time I ever played a steel drum was at Oscar's trash cans. So thanks to Oscar, the grouch kind of got me interested in it. Um, and then I reached out to my dad's family friend, had an old set of steel drums because he thought it'd be cool. He was a fan as well of Buffett music, thought he could pick it up and start to play Buffett tunes. Didn't work out so well for him. So he dropped it off over at my place at my parents' house. And uh, within about an hour, hour and a half, I'd taught myself three little quick melodies, a Harry Belafonte tune and then um, a Buffett tune. Just kind of got it going. Primitive, but getting the concept down of the steel drums and where, you know, the techniques and whatnot. Had you played guitar or piano or anything like that before that point? Nothing melodic really aside from, I I would, I'd played drums and I was a a drummer up to that point. Um, and playing in the middle school and, and, uh, elementary school and middle school bands, but you do a little bit of melody instruments in the, in the vibes or marimba or that kind of stuff. But it was just, you know, real basic, nothing too crazy. So up to that point, it was just mostly rhythmic percussion. So, and you were how old at this point? Uh, at that point, I was nine. Wow. Yeah. So I kind of took off. Funny enough, I guess the year that just before that was, uh, let's see, I guess the summer I, was, I just turned eight. So it was 19, I was like 1989 um, was my first Buffett concert. I was like seven or eight years old and it was the off to see the lizard tour. And, and um, I saw it at Meriwether post pavilion with my dad and kind of covered her eyes and ears during certain parts of the concert. It was, uh, <laughs> it was a lot of fun that that started it off. And then, uh, yeah, the following years when I kind of had my run in with the steel drum and from there, my Christmas gift that year was that set of steel drums from, uh, from my, uh, my parents, friends. And um, <laughs> while most Kids were probably out playing soccer and doing all that fun stuff. I was locked in trying to learn off the sea of the lizard in Margaritaville because I was 10 <laughs> years old. <laughs> so, uh, uh, yeah. So then it started from there. That, that started the, the uh, you know, the inquisitive nature of such a unique sound and then learning the history of the drum, the history behind how it's made, how it's crafted, the challenges it's come, you know, come through. And, uh, and so it's not only just the neat sound, it represents uh, you know, fun tropical feels, but it also represents a lot of uh, challenges and diversity as the development, as the music development in the Trinidad and Tobago culture. So it took on two different meanings because you were playing it for the fun sound, but you're also representing its advancement as it was still growing and still is today. Yeah. I mean, how still drums have been around what probably just since about World War II, not that, not that long in the big scheme of things. That's right. Just at the um, kind of middle 1940s, late 40s, early 50s is when it really started to develop a lot more. And um, so since then, the, the, the whole history of it was it happened by accident because the, the instrument started, um, started the group had bands together that would have rhythmic competitions. They became pretty violent because they were very competitive. So the Trinidad government actually banned them from performing in public, but they still oh, wow. wanted to get together. Yeah. So they were that violent where people were, were uh, uh, you know, really, really getting physical and violent with it. So in order to do that, the guys, just like everybody want to keep the band going and they want to still rehearse as an outlet for not only stress, but just musical creativity. So in doing so, they would use um, whatever they could around them to make the most noise, wood, 
and bamboo would uh, make a certain tone, but metal objects seem to carry a lot more. And if you want your band to be louder, use whatever instrument has the loudest tone. Metal and oil drums happen to be prevalent around that time. And so they use those for initially rhythmic sounds, but then they found that as they hit it and it changed the, changed the shape of the metal, it changed the pitch. And so they took that concept and developed it to different size shapes, resulting in uh, different melody capabilities. So yeah, it happened by accident and then developed more and more. And when it first developed, uh, it was kind of seen as the bad guys, uh, you know, bad side of town kind of stuff. So the government and, and um, society didn't embrace the instrument. And so that's why it's come through so many challenges because not only were they trying to come up with this new instrument and really going where no one's gone before, they're also uh, categorized as being, you know, if you're playing this instrument, you're a bad guy and, you know, you're not seen as contributing to society and, and being accepted. So many different challenges. And now it's interesting because that has become the official instrument of Trinidad and Tobago and certainly most notably the sounds to the Caribbean islands. So it's interesting how it's overcome its challenges to be, now representative of that region of the world in a pretty quick time frame yeah Yeah. right and and like i said um, from the late 40s and early 50s and then developing into the 60s and really became more prevalent in the 60s 70s the u.s navy uh, steel band uh i don't know the the early on the very first uh performance by that but they were sponsored by the uh, uh by the navy steel band had had one of those together and so then its popularity grew and then in the 70s, I think he started to find it more in uh, Western music and, and as far as incorporating into some jazz elements and even some pop tunes because actually Robert Greenwich, who is uh, Jimmy Buffett's steel drum player, uh, really made his name through the studios of uh, Los Angeles and, um, and well, all over the country, but with names like John Lennon, Shaka Khan, um, Taj Mahal, I'm sorry, Taj Mahal, uh, Grover Washington, and a lot of those guys that were really exploring music in the seventies used uh, uh, Robert Greenwich's steel drum sound in a lot of their songs, which is pretty cool to see. Yeah. I mean, I didn't. So, so Robert Greenwich is recorded on a John Lennon record. Yep. Uh, beautiful boy. Beautiful boy. Actually. Wow. That's, to that. that's insane. Yeah. It's amazing. And so he's done with that. Uh, yeah. John Lennon, um, uh, Taj Mahal, uh, Robert Palmer, um, he did uh, every kind of people, which I've been playing recently the last few years. For some reason, I was always like, "Man, this sounds like he could have steel drums to it." Well, that's because it had steel drums in the song. So, <laughs> uh, but it really is amazing. To his credit, most people know him as an association with Buffett, but he really is a legend way beyond the uh, the Buffett fan base and Buffett world. He really is a musical icon for this instrument and one of the biggest ambassadors. And that shows through not only in his performance there, but through the big Trinidad. Uh, carnival that they have every year as well as the studio sessions where he's really been one of the first to take it out and implement it into the studio western music sound great that's that's cool you know it's it's probably the signature sound of the trap rock genre community even though there's plenty of bands that don't don't use it the boat drunks probably being you know long running super popular that don't have it but jim morris had it as you know in his live band jerry diaz has had it in his live band for years sonny jim plays it so a lot of those you know founding fathers of the community the genre have had still drums in their sound for 20 years or longer at this point so yeah and that's you know that's been uh what i've been i say lucky to have because this sound really does help shape the um 
the sound of this particular genre. It's, it's a distinguishing sound for sure. And so yeah. with not as many steel drum players in the market, especially when I was, when I was first starting out with it and the, the genre was developing more, uh, there weren't many pan players around. So it, I was fortunate enough to be called upon by some of the various different names um, to do different recordings and to do specialty shows and whatnot. So um, it started as kind of a, kind of a fun hobby and, and whatnot. And then I started to see the market for it and said, well, let's ride this wave for a little while and see how it goes. And, and that crazy enough to me, it's been 21 years that I've been doing it in the, in the trap genre. If you, I know it's been more, you know, defined in the last few years as trap rock, but early on 98, 97, 98 is when I was first doing it with some of the groups and it was pretty crazy. <laughs> yeah. So one of my favorite stories I've ever heard out of this whole community is Dennis McCoggy talking about calling your dad. Yeah. Yeah. I, I got to hear it from so, your side. Yeah. So first and uh, first and foremost, I've known Sue and Dennis uh, for, God, like I said, it's been about 22 years or so. And because he lived, he lived in uh, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, still does. And um, I lived in uh, Ellicott City, one of the suburb, suburbs of Baltimore, which distance wise is about an hour and 20 minutes away from each other. So it's not too far. And he was putting out one of his CDs and one of the steel drum sound. And I don't know how he heard of my name um, other than perhaps it, it could have been right around the time frame. And I think it was 1999. I think it was the first time because I played meeting of the minds in 98. And so I think maybe that word of mouth sort of got around. All I know is he reached out and he called, you know, his email kind of initially, but then reached out and called my dad and got my number and, you know, I didn't have a cell phone back then or a way to call it. So he yeah. reached out and called John Patty and, and uh, my dad picked up and he was kind of the boss. He's like, well, I'd like John to come up and to do this thing and have him record on it. Um, so we, we organized it and jumped in the car uh, and, and went up to the studio session and ended up recording from there. It was really neat. And that's actually where I met uh, our Scott Bryan, who um, ended up being the producer for my last three CDs, which is small world who knew at the time, but, um, and he was touring with Peter Mayer, uh, the Peter Mayer group and whatnot. And I think, um, I can't remember when his time was with Sheryl Crow, but it was right around that, that same time. Yeah, yeah. So it was pretty cool to kind of do that. And uh, that was a studio. So for me, my first big studio you know, experience was recording with Tropical Soul back in 99. And uh, I think it's, I want to say it's um, Caribbean Holiday um, is one of their tunes. And I remember we tried to record it. And it was raining so hard on the roof that we had to wait because you could hear it through the microphones. So <laughs> I was like, man, these microphones are really sensitive. We could hear that much. So uh, I thought I better not mess up too much. <laughs> and uh, I, the way Dennis tells it is that you are the only person besides him to be on every Tropical So album. That is true. And that is true. And I think you just recorded something for the new project, right? I did. I did it here in my home studio because it was during quarantine time. And we've done a few of them where some I've been in the studio with him. Others I've been, um, you know, remote from here in my home studio. And uh, it's worked out pretty well. But yeah, as soon as I hear they're coming out with a new CD, I say, well, you know, it's not finished unless I'm on it because that's the only consistent two people that have been on it. (laughs) <laughs> so um, I've been lucky for that, but it's been a great friendship. And that really uh, started, uh, sparked a, another avenue as far as live performances. Uh, because once I went back down to Key West, uh, a few years later, Sue and Dennis had me perform with the Tropical Soul Band. And I was doing the Street Fest party 
and a couple of other ones around um, hog's breath and whatnot while I was down there performing with one of the other groups. And so that also gave me an opportunity to then expand and market myself and kind of start the branding uh, at the time. So yeah, I owe a lot to Sue and Dennis for giving me a shot in the studio and down at Key West. So <laughs> Yeah, and then somewhere along the way, you hooked up with Jim Morris and became uh, part of the Big Bamboo Band. Yeah. Well, I mean, while you were still living in Maryland, right? I mean, I think when I first met you, you were still living in Maryland, but going down to Florida a lot. Yeah. So my, um, my kind of, uh, I say history, I went down to Key West in 98 and I was still in high school at the time, which is funny. (laughs) I have to go back to that, that story if we get a chance. Yes. Um, But I went, went down for my first meeting of the minds, 1998. And I was obviously still in high school in Ellicott city, Maryland, went to school, um, ended up going to college, uh, at university of Maryland. And so I was still around the Maryland, D.C. region, but I was also playing with a local group called Captain Quint at the time, which was a big, more or less Buffett, not a full-on tribute band, but we did a large majority of Buffett music, uh, but then had our own trap style as well. It was some great original songs on it. It was really some great music, actually. And so, um, so we were involved in a couple, of different, uh, a couple of different events. And, of course, you learn of the different, for lack of a better term, competitors because as you're in a band you're like okay well who are the other bands that are playing a similar style and that's when you had Jim Morris that's when you had Jerry Diaz and you had um, a couple of the other ones that were around back then Saint Somewhere was was big and so those were kind of the benchmarks and the different names that we were running with at the time to kind of see that size band because it was a seven or eight piece band so um, so I was playing with those guys for a while and then I had met Jim around 2000 say 2004 or five officially to have met him. Um, and he claims that he bought me my first beer at the jetty. I'm not so sure about it, but it makes for a good story. <laughs> and who knows, there's definitely a possibility for that. Um, but, <laughs> but he, uh, we met and then right around, I remember again, doing a show with tropical soul in 2007. That's where I met, um, uh, Kelly McGuire as well. We did a, uh, <laughs> we did a, a a show where he was the main act tropical soul was opening up it was tropical soul john frenzy and then jim morris and the big bamboo band um and then kelly mcguire was in that mix as well and uh he had a steel drum player kind of at the time playing dave lapio and then i guess that next year things had kind of they had separated with dave for a little bit and they were in need of a steel drum player so when i went down in 2007 um i was playing around town and jim said hey would you mind playing with us for you know a couple of shows on the island this week and I said, sure. I didn't really know a lot of Jim's music, but uh, jumped up and kind of faked it. And <laughs> so after that, he said, hey, what are you doing next year? You want to join the band and just, you know, kind of fly and meet us around? And that was it. So in 2008, I started becoming an official member of the Big Bamboo Band, and that kind of took off. So, Yeah, I remember um, probably the first time I ever, quote, unquote, worked a show with you. And the first time I worked a show with Jim Morris was Riddles in the Sand here in Galveston area, 2008. Yep. And uh, I was still living in Arkansas at that point. Um, but I was, I was working with Jerry kind of like you were doing with, with Jim Morris, you know, I'd occasionally uh, get out and, and help Jerry out on the weekends and uh, came down and I swear like every, cause y'all flew in and then like flew yep. right back to Florida. And it was like every member of Hannah's reef was there because the six of y'all were on stage, but everything else on stage, I think pretty much belonged to 
hand us reef. You know, it was right. one of those deals where RPA, all of our backline, everything. And uh, I think that was probably the first time I ever really actually met you. Um, yeah. But definitely the first time I ever worked with you. Uh, one of the few times I ever got to work with Jim Morris. And uh, yeah, it was, you know, it's crazy that long ago, 2008. Uh, Can I tell you something funny about that show? I had just gotten, in fact, the cases that I still use. I still had just gotten those hard cases, and there were more or less flight cases. Yeah. I learned something that day that just because they say flight cases still needs more reinforcement because we, um, we went, I remember uh, leaving, and I, I flew with the band, I think, from Florida, and because I was still in Maryland at the time, but we, I flew down to do some shows beforehand. Then we flew to Houston to do Riddles in the Sand. And the next day we were flying right from Houston right out to Las Vegas to do yeah. the show in Vegas. So I remember that the, one of the drums took a, uh, took a hit in the, in the uh, flight path, I guess. And, um, <laughs> you know, as gentle as they are. So I got up to do sound check at Riddles. And one of my notes was knocked way out of tune. And it was a pretty prominent note. It was a B that I used for, so all the, keys that use the, the note B. And I said, well, this sounds like a B flat now. How am I going to get around this? So I remember that show distinctly because I had to try to stay away from that note as much as possible during Riddles in the Sand. So that's, that happened, good- that's happened to Mark a couple of times over the years, you know, get somewhere and, and uh, actually you'll find this humorous one year, well, two years in a row, we went up to Putin Bay, which mm-hmm. I don't know if you ever went to that event, but it is so, did, no. it is so hard to get to. Like right. you got to, it's, it's kind of like getting to Key West, except there's also a ferry involved. Oh, jeez! Um, and, and like the kind of ferry where you have to walk on, you can't drive onto the ferry. Right. So we, the second year we ended up because getting merch up there was a huge pain. And, uh, mm-hmm. I've Mark, heard about that. yeah, Mark was really worried, you know, about getting his pan banged up. Cause I think it, we went and bought like one of those big boxes at home Depot. Like, I don't know, a four foot by four foot cube box, put all the t-shirts in the bottom of it, put Mark's pan in the middle, packed more t-shirts and CDs all around it and just shipped this entire box to put in Bay, Ohio. Yeah. I, you know, I've learned a lot about shipping these things and they are maybe tricky is the best way. Tricky, yeah. <laughs> You'd be amazed. Even to this day, when I go on tours for, uh, for like the holidays up North to Baltimore, oftentimes I'll end up reinforcing the padding with clothes that I'm wearing for that tour. And yeah. I've done it a few times where I've gone right from the airport right to the show. And when I open up my pan case, I'm like, never mind the boxers and the socks and the t-shirts. Don't worry about those. They're fine. <laughs> Just help the pad you. But they act as suitcases as well. But yeah, it's a very finicky, uh, finicky instrument. And uh, so it, it heightens the anxiety when you're flying. Let's put it that way. Here's what Mark does nowadays. He has those pool noodles. Yeah. And he puts them on the inside, you know, so that way... Th- I guess they can still get crushed a little bit, but not like they could without it in the middle, you know? So, yeah, I've been lucky. I have a, a flight case that allows me to, it's a lot more reinforced, a big square anvil case. And so that definitely has yeah. it. But I still try to put some foam padding in there, but the, the uh, noodles are, are a good idea as well. But so, yeah, it's amazing how just a little, you know, a little nudge will knock these things out of tune. So, yep. So yeah, that's, play, how, that's you, how that all started with Jim. Yeah. So, I mean, but you played with Jim up until, up until his death. Um, yeah. But you also played with James on a okay. I mean, you, Jim was your main gig for a while, I guess, but you also played with lots of other folks as well. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so as I mentioned, as I developed uh, into this market 
starting way back when I had uh, the first group aside from tropical soul was actually seen somewhere in tall Paul and uh, those guys. And I sat in with them um, once or twice that weekend down at hog's breath. And that was really cool and really fun. So it's amazing to see that we've been friends for that long uh, that we've that known each other that long. And um, so that was, that was really cool. But then I started to meet guys that were in the area where I was living, for instance, John Frenzy was out of New Jersey. So we'd see each other around the Mid-Atlantic shows a lot more. So John Frenzy, Jimmy and the Parrots. Um, I remember we did a big backyard party with Jimmy and the Parrots and young Jimmy and I are the same age. So it was kind of cool because we were kind of growing up together in this interesting market being the young kids out of it. So that was always, uh, that was fun. And um, yeah, and just learning, you know, sitting in with different guys, but then once I met Jim and he, you know, asked me to be part of that group that became the you know the more prominent group that i would most notably tour with so but um yeah it was it's pretty wild it's been an interesting thing to kind of look back and reflect on <laughs> yeah so um i want to touch on uh you know summer 2016 when jim passed away um I, obviously that was a huge personal loss for a lot of people you you know you toured with the man for what eight years or so i guess so but yeah. From the business side of it, what, I mean, it, it was like your, your main gig was suddenly gone. So how did you pivot and kind of keep the, the John Patty bank account from going to zero while also dealing with a, a personal loss, you know? Sure, sure. Um, well, you know, leading up to that, it, it was kind of a mix. And some people were curious about that because they said, well, what are you doing now? Now, Jim's group was my the main group that I was performing with, but not the only group. So I was working with other, other guys, Jimmy Pappas and I had a duo that we were performing together a lot. Um, I did a lot of solo work, so I still had those that were part of my main business. And then Jim was the main, you know, the bigger band. So um, it, it was interesting. It, it, it stopped, it, it dropped for a while. And, you know, you try to go through, you know, a personal, personal aspect and, and not look at the business side, but also realize as well, the, you know, the rug just got pulled out. All these things that we were going to have as the band are not going to be there. And some of them we were able to keep on and keep the band going. But, um, you know, it was kind of a fire for me, when, which is, again, looking back at the time, you don't realize what's happening. But it became a catalyst for me to really uh, shape my solo side of things in the direction that I, that I was hoping to go in. Um, and it's funny because that forced me to become more of a front man that I am now before I was side guy. I didn't really talk on the mic that much and singing wise, but all of a sudden due to having to be one of the front guys for the bamboo band that kind of shoved me out front. And I started learning how to, you know, how to work with the crowd, how to do a little bit more. And I had done some element of that beforehand, but now it was a whole different level. Um, so while the band side started to fall, uh, you know, those number of shows with the bands started to subside a little bit my solo shows and group shows started to pick up. So it was an interesting kind of Venn diagram, how that worked out. So yeah, as a, as a result of that tragic incident, it actually encouraged me and started, uh, as I said, like more of a catalyst to get me to move forward and grow. Yeah. You, you, Mark Morales, Melanie Howe and JD edge all occupy this interesting space to me in that most people think of you as a musician, as in, you stand on one side of the stage or the other and play your instrument, not as a front person, but you're all extremely capable of also being a front person. And it's really interesting to watch that dynamic play out for all of y'all. Um, so it's, it's, yeah. it's always interesting to me to hear, you know, how, 
how you handle that and uh and just how it works you know because it's, yeah. it's different than a sunny jim or jim morris or jerry diaz that they're just the front guy you know right you guys are playing ping pong between all these different roles and it's true and and you know some of that uh, can be challenging as, at times because you have to remember whose quote unquote whose show it is, right? So it's like when you're supporting act or supporting you know, musician, you have to remember, okay, well, you know, the name on the marquee is this name type of thing. So you want to support, but you know, you you're able to. It, it's also an art to dance between. Okay, don't take the whole spotlight, but every once in a while you can jump in, and that adds to the show without taking away from the show, you know. And so there's definitely a balance. And the list of guys that you that you listed there with. Uh, me, Mel, JD, and, and Mark, and, and there are a number of others as well, but they do, uh, they mesh that really well, uh, knowing when to step up, when to step back, and how to compliment. And um, yeah, there, there's an art to it, and you learn every time you do something, you're like, oh, well, maybe I can do this a little bit better, but um, I, I appreciate that. Thank you. And then you had the Tropical uh, Project with, with Sunny Jim, which I guess it's pretty, it's probably fair to say y'all are kind of co-frontmen on that. That's yeah. Yeah, and that's that was kind of um, and the the whole tropical thought came bet- between actually it was a trio that we were um, that we had with Jimmy Pappas because it made for really cool harmonies and we wanted to kind of maybe put this band together. But Jimmy had some different things that were coming you know coming and going, and we said, well, um, you know, sometimes it'll be the trio, and sometimes you can make it the duo, but we can still pull it under this kind of name. And uh, yeah, like you said, that game kind of a, a, a dual front man type of thing. And we share each other's uh, music and joking time. It's really become a lot of fun. You have a chemistry with certain people. James and I just seem to have this, uh, this instant chemistry. We can read each other um, and we understand where we want to go. We both have similar mindsets as far as how a show should be constructed ups and downs and whatnot. So we're able to feed off each other. And it's funny how many times we'll reach over and, you know, almost shout the same song to each other as far as what the next song should be. We have the same ideas. So been really fortunate to have that. And I think that's what's helped make that group um, even more special because it's a nice cohesive, uh, you know, creative uh, chemistry. So um, before we totally leave the history lesson behind, I do want to hear about your first meeting of the minds as a 17 or 18 year old. Yeah. Yeah. This is funny. So, uh, the way it all started out past couple years past uh, Sesame street, I had started a band uh, once I got into high school and it was called wasted daylight or wasting daylight. And it was a bunch of a uh, bunch of my buddies from high school. We started this group and funny enough, the way that we were discovered ended up um, we were playing a benefit show for a teacher in our school who um, it was a benefit for they had um, cancer treatments and whatnot. So we, did a show. We had a Buffett style party music. They had it outside. And at that event, there was another teacher who from another school who was part of the Parrothead club there in, Ch- in the uh, Chesapeake Bay Parrothead club. So she said, well, Hey, can you play our Christmas party? I said, that'd be really fun. That'd be a great fit. So we played for the, the Parrothead club's Christmas party. And they said this coming March, three months later, we're having this event called Margaritaville in March. And it's, it was, you know, every club has their event. So we opened up for A1A. If you remember Jeff Pike and Scott Nickerson at the A1A group. And at that, I was asked to sit in at that show with them. And they said, hey, this is really great. We've got this cool event happening in Key West in November. And we would love for you to come down to be part of that show. Now, if you can imagine, 
I'm 15 years old being asked to go to travel, going to Key West. I'm excited. I'm like, hell yeah, let's do it. My dad's like, hell yeah, let's do it. My mom's like, hold on, wait a minute. (laughs) (laughs) So, so, uh, but as it turned out, it was really, uh, it was very, very exciting. That's how it, that's how it happened. Um, where, uh, you know, Jay, uh, Jeff Pike and Scott Nickerson asked me to be part of that show and they had moved it to Key West. That was the first year that had moved from Key West from New Orleans. I'm not sure if I would have been able to go to New Orleans as easy as I did to yeah. Key West, but, um, but anyway, so the whole family went down and it was such a unique uh, experience to me. I'll never forget it. Uh, just, and, and just before that hurricane, I don't think it was Wilma. I forgot which one, but there was a big hurricane that year. So the waters were kicked up and, People weren't sure whether the event was still going to happen. Fortunately, it moved out. The event did happen. And when I walked in down there, it was kind of this interesting world. Um, you know, your first time in Key West is always just a really unique experience. But I had people come on up. To me from around the country saying, girl, kid, it's kind of a unique uh, experience. And um, so that, that was really neat. The whole, the whole weekend was just really exciting. Um, and then I got a chance to play with them on the main stage. And um, that year they had the main stage out by the cruise ship docks. So you'd have to go out where they, I think it's the Hilton. Is that the Hilton or Hyatt? Maybe it was the Hyatt. Um, and out by the docks. And that was such a unique thing to kind of walk past. That's where I met Buffett's band for the first time, Peter Mayer, Nadira, Robert Greenwich. Uh, and everybody, and it was just really neat to hang backstage, go up on stage and see three, 4,000 people there partying, playing. It was, it was my first big stage experience and that was really neat. And so, um, after that, uh, I, (laughs) after we were all celebrating after a while, I had a a whole bunch of family. One of the guys said, Hey, we got to go over to this place called Schooner's Wharf and you got to see this guy playing. And so we went over there and it was Jim Morris (laughs) and the place was packed. Yeah. And so my first, uh, didn't know it at the time, but first Key West down there was a uh, pretty eventful meeting all the, uh, the, the names and experiences that you have. <laughs> so it was really cool. I can only imagine being 17 or 18 and going to Key West, not just Key West, but like meeting of the minds. Um, the first time I went, I was 25 and I remember my mom, my mom and dad, they're retired now. They travel a lot now, but back then, like they hadn't been, you know, I don't know that they had been to a state that didn't border Arkansas at that point. And I just remember my mom, my mom going, going, you know, when I was 25, you were like a year old and I was taking care of you and you're going to Key West. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, and it was, I mean, it was, you know, even though I thought I knew what I was getting into, it was still eye opening. So I can only imagine. It was. Cause those seven or eight years between 17 and 25, you grow up a whole lot. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, you know, I, let's just, I walked a little taller going into high school, uh, that next weekend. Cause I was like, I just went to this amazing place in the world <laughs> called QS <laughs> and saw some things that you guys might not even see until you're, you know, through college. Um, but, uh, not only that, just, um, it, it's an experience that, you know, you, you, the tropical look and the feel, the fun of the music, meeting the people that I've held as kind of icons for a while, just being the band that I've followed, so it was just all really magical. And that year, the very first year, Buffett did come down. They had the street fest, street party, whereas um, where they've done it right outside Margaritaville, right there on Duval for many years. That year, it was on the side street uh, between uh, Captain Tony's, and I'm sorry, between uh, Sloppy Joe's and the next street over, that side street. Um, so it was right between there. It wasn't on Duval itself. So it was right in that little side street. 
And yeah. so uh, I remember hanging out. And I, there's a cool picture out of uh, I got a chance to hang with Robert Greenwich and Quincy. And so there's three of us there. And it's uh, me, Quincy, and Robert Greenwich hanging and talking. And Robert said, you know, hang around tonight. Hang around. Be, be here about 7 o'clock. And I said, oh, yeah? He said, yeah, just hang around here. Maybe on this side of the stage, hang around here. And I said, okay. And sure enough, that's when Buffett was coming into town and, and surprising everybody. So it was really neat to see that. And uh, again, for a 16-year-old kid to kind of be thrown in the middle of all that and meet some icons and, and go through that musical experience, it was really wild. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Speaking of uh, Quincy, one of my goals, like one of my dream shows I want to make happen and, and uh, come to find out Donnie was thinking along the same lines, I want to put you, Quincy, and Mark on stage together and have like a pan war. I would love that. I would. And if love we could that. somehow rope Robert Greenish into it, well, that would put it over the top. But just the three yeah. of y'all would be pretty damn good. So, well, a couple of years ago we did that actually, like 2012. I don't know if you ever seen the footage, but uh, it was Saint Some. Uh, no, I'm sorry, not Saint Somewhere. It was Ramage playing on the main stage, and they do uh, Magic Cruise. Their song Magic Cruise. Yeah. And they had me come out to play a couple of tunes and have me do Magic Cruise. So it was me and Quincy doing a little battle, and then all of a sudden Robert Greenish comes on the stage and. We knew what was going to happen, but it was pretty much like, okay, the little kids are playing. Let the teacher come in and show you how it's going. <laughs> how it goes. And so we had a little battle between the three of us, and that was really cool, really magical moment. And um, <laughs> But I would love that. It's so neat because the three of us all have different styles of performing, even though it's the same instrument, much like guitarists or any instrumentalist. Yeah. We all have different approach to it. So it's really neat to see, to see that and to be able to share it. But oftentimes we don't get to – you know, play at the same time because the instrument apparently you only need one of in the band. So that yeah. would be so cool to have everybody, everybody. Yeah, I think we should make it happen at Meeting the Minds one year. Uh, yeah. You know, we'll find us a bar somewhere and just make it happen. So that'll with the pan. That's it. Yep. So uh, let's let's kind of move into current day John Patty. Um, the John Patty Project. Uh, mm-hmm. Man, it's, it's so interesting to me um, what you do, like what, when you did – your show at the big stage last year at meeting the minds. It's so different than almost anything else that's going on um, in on the Island or in the, the genre. It's, it's almost like um, besides the fact that they're, you know, incredible musicians and songwriters, some of the lore of JD edge and drop Dead dangerous is that they're really different than everything else that's going on in the genre. You're like the same thing with the John Patty project, but the other way, they're this Southern rock country thing. And you're like this jazz pop, you know, it's yeah so different. Well, first of all, thank you. I really appreciate that. It makes me, makes me know that it's kind of working in a way that it's, you know, coming across that way. I, uh, growing up with many different styles of music, I've loved, um, just that many different styles. I've always loved the jazz R&B kind of feel. Of course, the instrument that I play lends itself to more Island based rhythms and Island based, uh, and whatnot. So I really learned a lot of how I play through Club Trini because they they were a great fusion of the island rhythms and jazz elements as well. So I kind of set out to have a group that was kind of like Club Trini. And as I was developing some of it and meeting some of the different artists that had their own takes of it, it had a little more smooth jazz element to it. So I, I try to balance between some of that island style, some of the jazz and some of the R&B for a few reasons. One, it feels good, you know, 
in the soul. Good for the soul to play that stuff for me because I just love a solid groove. It's really, really fun for me. Uh, but also to demonstrate what the instrument can do because so many people oftentimes pigeonhole it into just a Harry Belafonte, um, Red Red Wine, Buffett music thing and just limit it at that. And it's part of every steel drum player's um, I think a big part of a lot of their goals is to show that it can do more. So in some element, everybody does a few songs that you wouldn't think of. Uh, and I've kind of taken that on as kind of thinking, well, I can do that. And then some by fusing this and doing you know, just all kinds of different styles. And that's turned into the project. And was that something you were working on pre during the big bamboo days or is it something that's really happened? Yeah, it's, it's worked on, so my very first John Patty project, very first one, technically, uh, was 2008 before I moved to Florida. It was at, in my hometown in Baltimore, and I played a jazz festival uh, there in 2008. Then when I moved down here, it took a little time to kind of build up a few things and put another album out. The next round was actually in St. Louis in 2011, and I ended up doing a show there. So little by little, I was doing one or two projects a year, and even now, I still only have a couple here and there for a few different reasons. One is that it's tough to get that many guys together when you don't have regular shows and regular, you know, regular gigs and events. So you're, you're making it more of a specialty. Plus with that number, it's got to be a higher price tag. So there's only so many style of events that can kind of handle it. But I have smaller groups that I play around here with Sarah in Sarasota where I can try out some things. Uh, and so, yeah, during the, the uh, big bamboo days, I was also trying to grow this element as well. Um, Cause that kind of would help define what I really like to do in the style of music I really enjoy playing. So um, yeah, it was again, kind of a Venn diagram. Once, once the big bamboo band started to, um, you know, fall, uh, fall off a little bit, gave me more time and more opportunity to try to grow that. And fortunately um, meeting of the minds has given me a, a chance to display the band a number of times on different iterations. And so I've been really fortunate for that. And um, yeah. And then the last year, this last two years, I worked with a group uh, called the Rhythm Jets out of Atlanta, which is a really, really cool group, very similar to Spira Gyra. So we kind of have the same kind of elements. So we collaborated on my last CD to do a few songs, really neat stuff. And um, the last two music on the bays, we had the Rhythm Jets there. And that's a sound like you haven't heard before because it's a full horn section as well on oh, top wow. of. Yeah. So it, the we had... Um, it was an eight-piece band, myself and Nadira. And so with a horn section, Nadira, and a full band, it was kicking. It blows your hair back. And uh, that was exactly what I wanted to do because it's such a unique sound. And uh, so who knows? Once, uh, once things open up a little bit more, we'd love to try to do more of that, and we'll see how it happens. But, yeah, that, that's been the goal. And I call it the John Patty Project because it's – one, always a project, putting it together, but it also, that way you can have a little umbrella term and find out it's not always the same band, it's different guys, but that name, the project, will kind of let you know the style of music that's going to be happening. Yeah. Also, uh, just from the, the Sesame Street theme park, I, I do think Oscars, Oscars Trash Cans would be a really good band name too, though. <laughs> cool. I thought that. <laughs> <laughs> that would be really cool, actually. Yeah. I write that down. So, uh, Let's talk about the move because you you moved from uh, Maryland to Florida yep. uh, somewhere along the way. I don't know exactly when, but that's that's a pretty big move. I, I, speaking from someone who did something very similar, even when you know you're going to be pretty safe where you're going, it's still a big thing to pick up and move. It is. Up. 
And, uh, you know, for me, my whole family is in Maryland and I'm a huge family guy, big Italian family. So we're all very close and, um, it's a little scary to kind of officially go out on your own away from friends away from family and from all that kind of stuff. But I knew that I was coming into a network down here that, uh, it would quickly grow. And again, I attribute it to Jim Morris. He gave me a chance to, uh, move down here because when I first moved, I wasn't really sure. And I say this even today, I was just thinking that if it wasn't for Jim, I don't know if I would have made the move then or whatnot. Cause you know, as much as you talk and have a great idea and all this kind of stuff, unless the fire is set, it's tough to kind of make that move, you know? And yeah. so Jim said, listen, I have these shows. You come down, you can live at my house down here. He had another house and I would rent and uh, gave me a place to, to rent for a bit, gave me some shows to build up and some connections to start my own solo stuff. So that's what brought me down to Florida was because Jim said, hey, if you come down, we've got shows, we're here, we can start building it. I said, well... You know, no time better than now. So uh, that's what I did. It was August of 2009. And uh, I drove down and bought, bought a, a new car at the beginning of August. And uh, two weeks later, I was driving down to Key West. With, or I'm driving down to Punta Gorda. And I lived there for probably about, um, lived in the Punta Gorda area about six months or so. And then moved into Northport and then up to Sarasota, which is not that all that far apart, but that's where it first happened. So Thanks to Jim, that's where, you know, I was able to kind of start the fire, light the fire and, and get it going. Cool. And your, your dad uh, is a newscaster, correct? Yes. Yep. He's a broadcaster for, um, uh, broadcaster news anchor for a, the Baltimore News, um, WBAL Radio is the name of it. And it's the uh, news station for Baltimore on, on radio. People still listen to radio, but he's been there for, uh, let's see, about. 36 years, I think it is at that particular location, but he's been in radio his whole life. And, um, so yeah, he does still is there in the mornings doing the morning drive morning show. Wow. <laughs> so, you know, it makes, I, I don't know. It's just been the last couple of years that I found out what your dad did. And I thought, well, it all kind of makes sense now. Like the, the John Patty presentation of good looking guy, you know, like you, you never see you like look like you just rode out of bed, you, you know, like, this the whole presentation that you put out there, the the great marketing, all that. It makes sense when you find out your dad was like a radio news guy. So yeah, yeah, that's and that's uh, and I appreciate that. Thankfully, he'll hopefully he'll he'll like that because that means it kind of pays off. <laughs> but it's true. He he always taught me how to be on, how to uh, conduct yourself, and how to put your best foot forward. Um, you know how to carry yourself, how to all, all that kind of stuff. So. And that's certainly come out in my shows. You'll find that I also treat a lot of my shows similar to a DJ would, meaning that I try to try to keep songs, you know, space in between the songs very short because, you know, as a DJ, dead air is, is definitely right. <laughs> so right. so uh, I try to do that. I talk over to the top of the beginnings of songs and I introduce songs while the band is starting right before the thing kicks in. So a lot of those news and radio DJ elements uh, I apply to my live shows. Yeah, that's it's not a bad uh, training ground, I guess, for learning how yeah. to put a, put a show together. So, so did, yeah. did you ever have a, a full time job other than music? Uh, I had no, I have not actually. Technically, now I, I worked for a, a company doing. So I, my degree is actually in uh, it's a double degree in marketing and logistics and supply chain management through uh, University of Maryland, and they um, they had a great program 
I knew that I wanted to try music for a bit. So when I graduated, I worked for a PR firm for a little while. I interned there for a few months. Uh, and then I got a job with uh, one of my best friends. Mom had a temp agency and I was working for the company doing their hiring. So for about a year, I worked as close to full time as you can get because I would do four days a week, but I would have flexibility. Uh, yeah. I was also recording my, my full time, uh, my uh, first CD. So yeah, I, I was doing, I was doing a, a job that was, you know, eight to five and doing four days a week. And um, that was about as close as it came because right after that, I ended up applying for um, a job working on cruise lines. And so in August of 2006, I left to go to uh, Los Angeles for training and then hopped on cruise ships. And so since then, technically, I guess that could be a full-time job, I suppose, <laughs> uh, because I was with a, a cruise ship contract and company, uh, but that started full-time music from then on out. And so every once in a while, when I, when I came back to, uh, Maryland off the cruise ships, I would pick up a couple small temp jobs that I would kind of do during the week and fill in some of the gaps. Certainly in the winter time it would be, you know, slower as far as outdoor events, but overall it's been mostly music. And then coming down here, it's been music the full time. And I've been really blessed. Uh, you know, you, you go through periods, ups and downs, much like a sales job where some days are, some weeks are busier than others. But in the past few years, uh, I've been very, very blessed and very lucky to have uh, so much work that's keep me exorbitantly busy. <laughs> yeah. So, so uh, how many CDs do you have? So I have uh, four solo CDs and then a couple collaboration CDs as well. That's a that's a pretty good output, especially for uh, as I said, someone who you know is not a true front person, I guess. So yeah. Well, you know, it started with. Um, Putting, a, putting something out there to have some type of content. This was 2006 or so, and it was produced by a guy named Kevin Johnston, who was that band Captain Quint that I was working with. He had a studio, and he said, hey, you should put a few songs together. In fact, I remember we, were, we had performed in Key West, Florida, as the band for a week at Margaritaville. And on that long drive back, he said, you know, you should think about maybe putting a CD out, come and do it at the studio, and, um, you know, you, you could put out, uh, have some products for us. So I said, okay, that's probably not a bad idea. Start to get out there a little bit. So that was 2006 that I released my first uh, CD above the fold. Um, and yeah, and then, you know, you learn and you grow from there. Um, 2000, uh, 2010, I had Cabana Breeze, um, which was very lucky. That was under the, the production of uh, Scott Bryan, our Scott Bryan. And that started uh, the airplay on Radio Margaritaville. So I got lucky with that. And uh, that kind of kept it going. And um, the collaborations just kind of kept going from there. And then the Christmas CD that came out in 2012. And then there was a little hiatus for a bit until about 2018 when I did my final one so, or my, uh, my last one. So, um, but in between there, I did one with Jimmy Pappas as well. A, uh, one called We Got You Covered in 2015. So every two to three years, I have something that kind of comes out in some light. So, yeah. There you go. So, but yeah, I mean, I'm impressed. Six albums in 15 years. That's yeah. I, I know several songwriter friends of ours who can't maintain that pace by any means. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, I learned uh, from, I learned from Jim as far as uh, merchandising and putting, putting content out, not just for the sake of just putting anything out there, but that's how it's going to grow. So. Yeah. So uh, the Christmas concert, I guess that was a natural extension of the Christmas CD, but, uh, I've heard from people I trust that it's a hell of a show and I want to see it someday. So, yeah, man, I would love to take it on the road. We're working on that. Of course, this year we'll see what happens with it, but um, 
yeah, it started. This is probably a, not the year to start a new touring project. No, no. And I kind of resolved, you know, I thought, oh, maybe I'll just save some money this year doing that. But um, a, a lot of that is, uh, which is kind of ironic, but is inspired by Peter Mayer's Christmas show, Stars and Promises, which is, which is huge. I thought this is such a cool project. I've always been a big fan of Pete and the work that he does. And so um, I tried to use that as a little bit of a model where I, put out the Christmas CD and I thought, well, this would be a fun way uh, to maybe get a project in there in more of a theater setting. And and the reason for starting that show was because a lot of times people, when you try to go to a theater or you try to go to a listening venue, you know, you'll, they'll embrace singer songwriters, I think a bit more than they will an instrumental act, unless there's a connection or tie to it, meaning whether they're, you know, Grammy nominated or touring artists or something like that. And then beyond that, to say that it's a steel drum show, people don't know what to expect because they, they think that it's just an island thing. They say, well, you know, I'm not sure if that would kind of fit in this kind of world and, and uh, not sure if it would fit on the stage here. We'll call you when we do our luau, which is funny because the luau is Hawaiian and not Caribbean. Right, yeah. That's in a whole other discussion. But anyway, so uh, starting the Christmas show, I thought that might be a way to get in the door into these theaters to say, Hey, it, because it's a holiday seasoned event, this would be something different. And so that's how it started. And I started it here in Sarasota in 2013 and it's certainly grown over the years. Um, and been very, very fortunate to, uh, to have it kind of take off a bit. Certainly we've taken it on the road a few times and, uh, Chicago a few times and then up to uh, Minnesota with, uh, Jen Bostic and the different iterations of it. But when I'm down here, I, you know, have the guys that have done it for a number of years. I have the production that's involved in it. And uh, last year it was, it was really phenomenal as far as uh, everything just kind of came together, both music wise, production wise. And uh, we sold it, sold it out. I had about uh, 400 or so people in attendance there for that one. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah I, I definitely, well, <laughs> definitely want to catch that one day. Yeah. So I, I, I came, I was thinking about coming down this past year because Jerry was actually doing a, a solo tour to Florida that same weekend. And I was like, Hmm, Oh really? I could jump in the van and then I just got to figure out how to get from like, you know, the yeah. habitat to wherever JP's doing his show. I came close to doing it, but I didn't. So, and this one was, this one was cool because I usually, what I try to do is keep people guessing and also a few styles. So I'll have different guest artists come in. And this year I had a combination. Uh, I have an incredible uh, musician here at, a Cuban guitarist named Renacito Avich, and he's a phenomenal Cuban trace guitar player and uh, really just electrifying to watch. So we fuse styles and, you know, taking the Christmas music in an already island format, and then we added a Cuban element to it. And uh, I've uh, been fortunate to have uh, the girls, Drop Dead Dangerous Girls, kind of be in the area uh, the last two years. So naturally using Melanie for percussion, it made sense and she brought a whole new element to it. And this year Kitty was down as well. So I had Kitty along with the show. So it was really, really kind of action packed. I'm really not sure how I'm going to top it this year, but I've got some ideas in the works. <laughs> yeah. And and you've got some time to, to think about it. So, yeah, uh, you'd think so, but gosh, you know, it's right around the corner. Yeah. <laughs> I hate to say that, but it is. I mean, you know, we're sitting here talking about this uh, on May 30th and, you know, meeting, what what we're going to call meeting of the minds for this year is only like five months away. Yeah, you know? it's so, amazing. Yeah, yeah, 
So yeah, I know there's a halfway last year. I did halfway to Christmas on June 25th. And I can't believe that would be three weeks from now. That's yeah. Just- that That's crazy. So uh, I want to close things out with a few, uh, like rapid fire type questions, sure. but yeah. before we do that, uh, just kind of want you to, I don't know, share your thoughts, uh, like on the, the greater trap rock community and, and genre and kind of what's like, what's your favorite part about being part of this, this big family, this functional crazy family, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a few different elements to it. Uh, and I've been fortunate enough to go through and see the transformation a little bit. It started as more of a, almost as a, a, a Buffett tribute and, and dedication and whatnot to his music. And then it started to fuse and, and, and shift into the influence, the Island influence song. And now everybody, the, the fusion of different country styles and, um, and jazz elements in the, you know, the Island feel. So it's really neat to see that transition as one. Uh, I think one of the coolest things, and, and I don't know because I've been in this world for the most part, but what I'm learning from some of the other musicians that are in the regular country music scene and whatnot is that this really is a unique market and unique genre, not only because of the style of music, but who's involved, meaning the artists and how welcoming they are and welcoming to help each other out, whether it's in, studio sessions, whether it's live performances and sharing shows, whether it's learning and extending about tour information and how to get into venues and whatnot. That's been really cool. And beyond that, the family of fans who I've literally known uh, three quarters of my life and I've grown up with. So for me, it's a very special, uh, a special world that we get to live in because it's kept me afloat and able to have this as a full-time job my entire life essentially. And, um, None of that has been more evident than right now in this, you know, this crazy time that we're going through with everything shutting down. The Facebook lives have literally kept me alive and a lot of the other friends. And it just, the support from all the fans is tremendous. So you think of Trop Rock, yes, it, it kind of, it, it kind of has a little umbrella term of the style of music, but it really encapsulates the fans and the, the, good hardness of the artists the fans the music is just it's really cool to be part of that big family and i think that's what's most impressive and what sets this genre apart uh wonderfully put so and everything you said is true as can be so yeah. I, I like to i like to say that the genre of trap rock and the community are not necessarily the the same thing um right know. eric erdman yeah. he's not trap rock musically but he's certainly part of the 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 community yeah absolutely absolutely and and you know i think the fans recognize that because there there's been discussion of what is it what's really defined as this genre and it's should it only be tropical well you know orchestras these days are fusing with newer age music because you know you you kind of fuse you you learn styles so uh you know i think the fans at the end of the day love a good show and sometimes it might not be solely tropically based but I think they can appreciate the artistic value and creativity that goes into it. And so having guys like Erdman, um, Jen Bostic, uh, you know, the girls, th- different, different elements, I think people recognize it. It may not be fully tropical, but we're getting one hell of a show. And at the end of the day, the support is kind of what matters, and it's huge. Yes, sir. All right. Well, JP, thank you so much for, uh, for doing this. I enjoyed having you, uh, being the, the guinea pig for episode number one. So <laughs> appreciate it. Thank you so much. This is really cool. And, uh, gave me a chance to kind of 
go down deep in the old history books. <laughs> yes, that, that's, that's, I mean, that's the goal of this is really to, to establish, you know, if I do this for a year, have like this oral history of the, the community yeah. and the genre. So, well, let's wind this up with some rapid fire questions. Sure. So, if you're ready, uh, what's your favorite beach? Siesta Key. I could have guessed that one. And yeah. I don't know you that well. <laughs> uh, if you could collaborate with any, uh, any artist alive that you have not yet worked with, who would it be? Do they have to be, can it be any artist, anybody? Anybody, yes. I would really love, Stevie Wonder is one of my favorites and one of my heroes. And so uh, I would have loved, I would love to get a chance to collaborate with Stevie Wonder. Uh, that's, I expected a pretty left field answer for you on that one, but yeah, that's, that's pretty cool. So Was that, was that left field or? That, that? That's pretty left field. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I See, have some people... ideas where you might go with that, but. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. Stevie Wonder was not not there so <laughs> what, what did you think i'm kind of curious now. I, I don't I mean, I mean not stevie wonder i i guess yeah. you know I, I guess you know you you are into the r&b pretty heavy and i don't i think of you i mean i know you're in a jazz too but like i think of you as like the jazz guy and i mm-hmm. maybe don't think yeah. about the r&b side of you enough so yeah yeah you you'd be surprised ask <laughs> ask uh, eric erdman and and uh like i said the drop dead girls we've been on the on the road a couple of times and we talk about songs and things that influence us and we've gotten into some old I mean, you look at me you wouldn't think that i'd be big into hip-hop but i like some of the hip-hop old school stuff too and you never know so well, yeah stevie wonder would be the, the cool yeah, collaboration. we're gonna have to pause the rapid fire and tell this story real quick so all these years I'm, I'm i'm just a few months older than you i think um yeah yeah so all these years that i've ridden around with jerry diaz and mark morales being the kid but you know by like mark's like eight years older than me yeah but the kid in the van and then a few years ago, you, me, and the girls loaded up to head to, from Kima to the Lone Star Luau. And I looked around and I went, holy shit, I'm the old man in this van now. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's right. You were in the car when we had one of those uh, hip hop Yeah. You, you were playing all kinds of crazy stuff. So, yeah. I don't see. You wouldn't think it. I uh, wouldn't think it, but. <laughs> all right. Back to the rapid fire. Yeah. What's your favorite song by an independent trap rock artist? Hmm. Oh, this is tough because um, there's so many that flashed in my head. Um, but, you know, I really like Island State of Mind. Kelly Maguire just encapsulates that jazz side, but he, do, he does yes. a really, really cool one. So that that's a favorite of mine whenever I hear it. Kind of relaxes me, believe it or not. <laughs> cool. Uh, favorite cocktail? Uh, rum and Coke. It's nice and simple. Yeah. Although uh, recently I've really jumped into um, – old fashions so i'm kind of <laughs> on the fence but i'm gonna go rum and go all right favorite buffett song uh Criola. favorite buffett album uh fruit case yeah, i was kind of thinking barometer stoop after some of the stuff you'd said earlier but it's you know what that's that three that cluster of three fruit cakes barometer soup and banana win are my three favorites you know that were released so it's, it was tough between those two but Fruitcake's uh, just, for whatever reason, stands out just a smidge more. All right. And uh, the big question, uh, if you could create a Mount Rushmore of trap rock artists, which four people would be on it? Oh, man. I'm either going to create friends and enemies on this one. I, I should have sure. warned you ahead of time. So, uh, are there, What's the criteria for this? Do they have to be, um, you know, the guys that are, that are the icons in it? or uh, your, It's your personal Mount Rushmore. So. Ooh. Oh, man, this is 
This is tough. Yeah. Well, I think Sonny Jim's got to be in there because he's kind of like, he's kind of the guy that's kind of created to help carry this flag. Uh, um, Jim Morris, Sonny Jim. Uh, let's see. Man, this is tough. We're going to have to edit out the space on this one. <laughs> yeah, but, but then we lose the drama of it. So, <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're right. Um, gosh, for such an indecisive person, this is a tough thing. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I'd say, yeah, I'd say, um, man, <laughs> how to stump JP. I know. Well, cause there's, you know, you want it to be best represented, you know, type of a deal, but, um, yeah, the guys that I that I just think of, it's been been Frenzy. Been, I'm sorry, been uh, Morris, Sonny Jim. Um, you can't get past those two. <laughs> I can't because I'm trying to think the next next two because each one represents something a little bit different. Um, man. All right, we'll we'll let it go. Here's one more for you. Okay, all right. We'll if you could add a, a fifth person to the Mount Rushmore next to the two blank faces, but the fifth person has to be a non-musician from the community, who would that be? A non-musician from the community? Yes. Hmm. Radio person, something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> this is going to be kind of funny. Um, <laughs> Debbie Hess. <laughs> Debbie Do you know Hess. Debbie Hess? Yes, I know Debbie Hess. <laughs> yeah. Now, I say that because, obviously, she's one of the biggest fans, but she's everywhere. And so it just shows the amount of support that she's, you know, when you think of some of these parties, you'll see Debbie there. I don't know if this is a, a legitimate event because Debbie Hess isn't here to show the support. Yeah, uh, that's true. I, I, as far as fans go, because I, I think you could add a million, uh, a million add-ons for the, the fans that really help make this uh, an extra thing. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, and she was a TRMA fan of the year a couple of years ago. Yeah, very well deserved, and the queen of the selfie. Oh, God, unbelievable! So, yeah, so her her picture would her you know would be her face holding the camera and have to do that. Yeah, That's, like what with all the other faces behind her, so like it's one big yeah. <laughs> yep, and that that would that would be it. So uh, I have to come back on the other two there, I guess. Huh? Uh, I might I might call up Debbie and ask her tell her to add the two more faces since she's going to be yeah. taking the picture. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's it. That's there we it. go. So. Well, JP, thank you much, man. This is fun. And, uh, thank you so, so much. This is really cool. And, uh, I appreciate you doing this and give everybody a chance to kind of tell their story and how this whole thing developed. Yeah. And, uh, look forward to seeing you. I, I don't know that I'll see you before I surf ballroom. I'll see you at surf ballroom. So, yeah, yeah. I'd like to say before, but who knows? Uh, probably not. And looks like the surf is going to begin, which anybody's listening. I know that they will be, but you should definitely make it to the surf. Yes, you should be a good one, especially since so many other things have kind of, uh, kind of canceled out for the year. I have a feeling it's going to be extra special this year. Yeah. That could turn into a complete barn burner. I think if yeah, uh, something tells me. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, all right, man. Appreciate it. Have a good one. Thank you so, so much. Appreciate what you do.